Hello, and welcome to Health Views with Deb Friesen, MD, a podcast about health and wellness within today's healthcare landscape. I'm your host, Dr. Deb Friesen with Kaiser Permanente, and I've been working in healthcare for over 20 years. During that time, I've learned that the most powerful tool for healing is the power of listening and the value of asking the right questions. Come join me as we'll together explore timely topics that impact people, businesses, and communities. Now let's check out today's view. So my guest today is Dr. Choi, and she is a highly ranked board-certified REI, and if you don't know REI, it's a reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialist. She has been helping families bring babies into the world for decades, has really lectured extensively on infertility, onco-infertility, which you're going to learn about, fertility preservation as well, and she is now the chief medical officer at Progeny. So let's actually start a little bit with what you do and kind of how you ended up here. So I don't know how far back you want to start, but I am interested in why medicine, why OBGYN, why REI and explaining what REI is, and then about your latest transition. But tell us about your journey. Happy to. I started off actually as an English major. And that was my way of rebelling against my, you know, immigrant parents philosophy that we had to either slot into becoming an engineer, a lawyer or physician. They were both immigrants from Korea and found their career spots here and succeeded as physicians. And education to them was paramount. And I found what they did very appealing as the oldest of three children. And yet I wanted to try something different. And so an undergraduate, I actually told them, listen, sorry, I'll do my pre-med courses because I am still kind of interested in medicine, but I want to explore literature. And so I ended up engaging in creative writing. I had some terrific poetry instructors, did a thesis on Paradise Lost and censorship. And at the same time, you know, Unparalleled did pre-med preparation. Do you still write? There's been a hiatus, but I'm, I'm turning to it, I think, more so. And I think that's kind of helped me in terms of my engagement with patients and with medicine. There is a lot of science and knowledge and following the regulatory rules, but there's also a little bit of artistry. Absolutely. And creativity. And poetry, right? I mean, when I think of my favorite poets, Rilke or Mary Oliver, Mm -hmm. it's... it's, Mary Oliver is great, yeah. Yeah, it's those connections that happen almost on an unconscious level of as far as processing things sometimes that I think does help us bring our humanity to what we do. Absolutely. And I think it's also that attention, this kind of curiosity about nature and about the community around one for a poet to really be able to capture and convey their own message, their own art, which I find very appealing. So I went from that. And then I taught English at a high school in Massachusetts for a year, which was great. Dabbled with the idea of becoming a professional chef. So I worked in a kitchen in Cambridge. And then, you know, applied to medical school along the way because I am the oldest of three and I am an immigrant daughter. At the end of the day, I actually did go to medical school and it wasn't kicking and screaming. I was very glad with my choice. Med school was very hard. You know, Columbia has a very rigorous program. Any medical school program is rigorous. And then the practical aspects, I think for me, and I I listened to one of your other podcasts where Kaiser is turning the medical education process on its head in a fantastic way, like having the students right away enter into clinical practice, which I think really helps hone why you need to learn organic chemistry or why you need to learn anatomy as opposed to learning it in a void, right? And so, you know, from medical school, I found really quickly the areas that really appealed to me were either psychiatry, because I liked the thoughtful mental aspect of that, the mental health, as well as women's health care. Because I liked procedures and surgery at that time, I ended up doing a residency in OBGYN. And then I realized as much as I loved delivering babies, I disliked the stress factor where sometimes no matter what you do, and this is true even in 2023, no matter what you do, crazy things happen, even in the most controlled tertiary care centers. And so that kind of chaos didn't appeal to me. I liked the reproductive endocrinology, the science, the idea of being able to break down how a woman's reproductive tract works. And I had some fantastic mentors in med school and in residency. And so I kind of drifted over to reproductive endocrine and infertility. Did you do that all at the same time then? So you did OBGYN and a fellowship right after? Yeah. So, so, I mean, the way that my educational track is, is pretty standard. I did do undergrad. You know, my rebellion was taking a year off to teach English and to work in a restaurant. And then I went straight into med school and then right into residency and fellowship. Okay. 
you know, I it was a very re- rigorous REI fellowship. I was privileged to be able to do research at the same time with a really well-known estrogen researcher, Bruce McEwen, who's unfortunately passed over at Rockefeller. And being able to understand how estrogen can mediate neuronal connections was fascinating. It is fascinating. And along the way, it's fantastic. And so along the way, I got a lot of clinical training and background at Cornell, a lot of infertility care. And so from there, I moved into clinical academic medicine at Columbia, and I was on faculty there. It was a really great experience. I learned from some really well-established, well-respected professors and instructors and authors in the field like Rogerio Lobo and Mark Sauer. And I also was able to help develop the Onco Fertility Program. And we're going to talk more about that in a little bit more detail because I'm fascinated with that whole development as well. And what a gift to women going through it is. chemotherapy. And, and be able to impart to them some more control over their life. Yes. And life is, it's all, I'm happy to discuss that later. Yeah. And then after the, you know, after being with Columbia on faculty, training residents, training fellows, taking care of patients, which is all very fulfilling, I wanted to do, be able to have a little more autonomy in terms of how I manage my time and how I was able to relate to patients. Because as you may know, working in a managed care system, it's basically, you got 10 minutes, Janet, to see this patient. You got to like meet our metrics for our department. So it's not, I'm not faulting anyone. That's just how it's structured. And so when I had the opportunity to join up with three other fantastic physicians in the area, along with a large uh, national network, CCRM, I, I moved over to them. And for about six, seven years, I served as a medical director and founder, one of the co-founders. Again, what I really appreciated about that was being able to spend 30, 45 minutes to an hour or more if needed with each patient and really kind of delve into what their specific needs were as it came to fertility and family building. And also insert a little bit more patient education for like long-term health issues. And so I feel like I was able to help a lot of people, but also it fostered a lot of meaningful relationships. And from there, because reproductive endocrine infertility, especially for people who need fertility support and that need is growing, you know, I quickly realized over the years how expensive all this is and how unaffordable it is for so many people. So when Progeny invited me to join them on their mission, and their mission is is to support anyone and everyone who wants to build their family in a meaningful, supported, well-educated, safe manner. I was like, it kind of aligns with what I want to do. And it's taking it to the next level of broader scope. And so that's how I landed up here. I love it. I was, as I did my research and looked at the work that you've done, and you've just talked about, just so impressed. And I'll have to tell you, though, what really impressed me was the comments I found from your patients. And these are public. These are not PHI. But just want to share, because I think it just reflects on the person that you are. Dr. Choi is really, really intelligent, always willing to brainstorm and listen. She's an amazing listener. She's an extremely detailed doctor. She listened to our concerns and talked us through the whole procedure. There's a lot of steps. It feels kind of overwhelming. Be ready with all the questions you want to ask. She's a great resource and an open book. She does not have an ego. I think this is just a testament to obviously the love that you have for what you do and the love you have for the people going through the journey. They felt that. And I'm sure they still feel that at Progeny. Give us just a few sentences about, you you talked about their mission, but how do they go about actually exercising that mission in the world? And, And what's your role as chief medical officer? So Ajani and I, I think, are a great fit because they started off, they saw a need that was, there was a huge gap. I don't think, even though traditional carriers understandably offered some sort of fertility care in some cases, but not all, back in 2015, 2016, when they were founded, the founders of Progeny were approached by different companies saying, listen, we want to be able to offer better, more sound fertility and family building benefits, and we, we don't know what to do. And so Progeny was the first of its kind, and it is still the leading fertility and family building benefit provider in the country. And I think what they do so well is they offer truly equitable, comprehensive care. And again, as a physician in the past, anytime an insurer's name came up between me and the patient, it wasn't anything good. And this is not to fault traditional carriers because they're doing a very hard job. But it was usually like, Dr. Choi, I'm sorry, but can you please talk to their medical reviewer because they're denying me care? And I'd say, well, I mean, I think this is the most medically appropriate treatment for you. And you, the patient, agree, but sure, I'll talk to them. And invariably, the medical directors usually got on the phone, were very sympathetic and would say yes. But it was a very onerous task, right? Especially when you're trying to manage all these clinical patients and and your staff. Progeny makes it much easier. Basically, they hold the doctor-patient relationship very sacred and they respect it, which is what I really like. 
And so they're able to allow patients and their physicians to figure out in a tailor-based fashion, what's the most appropriate set of tests? What's the most appropriate treatment? Because it's not one also, you know, it's not all one size fits all. And we'll go over that later on. And there aren't these onerous pre-auths. And so basically, the other thing that I think is really marvelous about how Progeny set up their structure is it's based on covering episodic care, so end-to-end, meaning a lot of traditional carriers, again, because they had to or felt they need the need to, would say, listen, we'll cover fertility benefits. We're going to check a box that we, we say we do. And here's X number of dollars. And what I saw was a friction and the tension. And again, patients with fertility issues already incredibly stressed out, incredibly anxious probably to the level of, unfortunately, like oncology patients. And then add on top of it the burden of having to cover the cost of their care because, you know, their provider, if they did support their benefit package, if they did support anything, maybe supported one-third of an IVF cycle. So then the patient is like, I don't know what else am I going to do. And it sometimes leads to not the best clinical decisions despite coaching from me and my team because the patient has a scarcity mindset and because they're like, I got to fit this in and have a kid before I run out. And if they didn't have coverage, it was a matter of how am I going to afford it? Do I need to take on a second or third job to pay for the necessary medical treatments that, I, that you're prescribing me? Should I cash out my 401k? I've seen that. Should I take out a second loan on my house? And so I think the beauty of what Progen has been able to design in a very short time frame, seven years, is it kind of alleviates and removes that stressor, the financial stressors at least, so that patients can really focus on with their physicians the care aspect. And isn't that what we want people to be able to do in medicine, no matter what it is, whether it's fertility, whether it's chronic care, to just have that disappear so that you can use your bandwidth for the things that really matter to you. I love that. Let's talk about naming things, because as I was going through just thinking about my own training, what I'm reading now, and how it's shifted from infertility to actually fertility, and even from fertility to family formation. So. What language should we be using when we're talking about these issues now? So I think infertility, I think people are trying to highlight the positives. So instead of making someone who is not fertile, I think it's a matter of highlighting the benefits that support anyone who has fertility needs. So focusing on the optimistic outcomes, right? Basically the vision that anyone who wants to have a child should be able to understand there are many different ways to achieve parenthood. There's no one right answer. And so when it comes to Supporting that, you want to be able to make sure you're supporting it as an employer in a very equitable way. So accounting for single parents by choice. I can't tell you the number of single women, single men who want a parent. And so they need access to donor gametes. For single males or same-sex male couples, they will frequently also need a gestational carrier to carry for them. And being able to incorporate that. Making sure that patients don't have to jump through hoops like saying, all right, and I've had this come back at me from patients before. For patients like, how am I supposed to meet my insurer's definition of infertility so they'll cover my IVF? I'm 41 years old. I'm a lesbian. Do I have to go home and have heterosexual sex with someone? I don't want to. I'm like, I know, I'm sorry, but I didn't come up with these rules, right? So I think it's really, really important to understand that there are so many different ways to address fertility and family building, and we need to honor each and every one. So this is just really just so much more expansive, in other words, that we're welcoming everybody into this this circle of family, whether or not they've they've gone through a year of heterosexual sex and haven't conceived kind of thing. Let me go back to some basics with you, because we're going to be talking about words again as we go through. You just said a word that a lot of people won't know, which is gametes. What is a gamete? Oh my goodness, I can't believe I even said that. A gamete (laughs) is a reproductive cell, whether it's sperm from a sex assigned at birth male or an oocyte or egg from a sex assigned at birth female. And so in order to have a pregnancy occur, not all eggs and sperm come together and create a pregnancy, but some way either unassisted through attempts at home or in a laboratory setting through in vitro fertilization, the goal for family building is bringing an egg and sperm together, creating hopefully a healthy embryo, and then putting that embryo into someone's uterus, and hopefully ending up with a live, healthy singleton pregnancy nine months later, 10 months later. Awesome. There's some other terms that people will bandy about in articles. IUI. Yes. So IUI, intrauterine insemination, sometimes more informally known as the turkey baster method, which is not really true. (laughs) So IUI, intrauterine insemination, and it's a procedure that's typically performed by a healthcare provider, whether it's a nurse practitioner, midwife, or physician, whereby they take sperm 
either from a partner's sperm, ejaculated, frozen, sort of uh, usually a frozen or donor sperm, whether it's an anonymous sperm donor from a sperm bank or from a known sperm donor, a friend, colleague, relative, not related to you, who's providing the sperm. And then that sperm is cleaned, counted up by the andrology lab. Once the sperm is prepped and ready, and it's time to when the recipient, typically a person who has the eggs, is ovulating, releasing the egg. In the office setting, the healthcare provider identifies a sperm source, takes a sterile catheter, and it's literally about a millimeter or so in diameter. So it's not painful for the most part. And through a speculum, so this is a lot of women have to go through pap smears will be familiar with this. I tell patients, it's kind of like getting a pap smear. We'll insert that little catheter through the vagina, through the cervical canal and into the uterus. So you're bypassing some of the mucus blockades in the cervix and place this from the upper uterine cavity. All in all, that actual procedure takes 10 seconds. I've had some patients that say, that's it. And I've had a few patients say, well, that was, that was, that was actually easier than trying at home with my husband. I was like, he would then be like, don't, uh, don't tell him that. But yeah, okay. don't go there. And success rates are going to depend a lot on how old your eggs are at the present time, meaning women who have younger aged eggs, because as females were born with one to two million eggs and we don't replenish that supply, so the quantity and quality just go down as we age. So women in their young 30s with no significant fertility history can expect pregnancy rates of about 15% per IUI without any added medication. Those pregnancy rates will drop. So for a woman at 40, 41, 42, the success rates with one IUI attempt drop to like under 1%. So that's IUI therapy. And so then you would think about something like IVF, which is a whole nother acronym. Correct. So IVF is in vitro fertilization as opposed to in vivo fertilization, which is when you have egg and sperm coming together, typically when people try unassisted at home, for instance, or wherever you want to try without any assistance. And in vitro fertilization means taking that crucial mixing the egg and sperm together into a lab setting. And in order for in vitro fertilization to happen, well, basically the person who has the eggs, so I'm just going to refer to a female in generic terms, undergoes 9, 10, 11, 12 days worth of daily hormone injections prescribed by their physician. And the dosing is based on a whole view of uh, personalized parameters, like your egg supply, your age. And during that process, it's, it's a lot of work, I warn my patients. So you're trying to juggle your job or your life, your home life, your schooling, and coming to the doctor's office four or five times for morning monitoring visits, ultrasound blood work. So again, a lot of work, but short-lived. And symptoms that are transient, bloating, crankiness, Suddenly people are like, I didn't even realize I had ovaries until I started to stimulate them and they started to swell up. Some of those are very common and again, short-lived. And at a certain point in time, the person then undergoes minor surgery, usually in the doctor's office and usually under sedation. So I tell patients, it's kind of like getting an endoscopy. You're asleep for about 10, 15 minutes. The eggs are literally vacuumed out of your ovaries by a skilled physician clinician who knows what they're doing. Sounds awful. <laughs> yeah, no, but it, it is it is truly fascinating. I still find that part fascinating. And so once the eggs are actually evacuated, they're collected in these little tubes, passed off to this team of embryologists, so masters of science, PhDs, and they take over. And they're busily in their positive pressure, like pH titrated setting taking a very careful look at the eggs that have been removed and trying to figure out which of the eggs are usable. And they'll then try to combine the eggs with sperm. Again, the sperm can come from a partner, from a donor, doesn't really matter. And they can literally grab one sperm by the tail at a time. And they can, with that glass needle, inject one sperm into each mature usable egg. And that's called intracytoplasmic sperm injection or ICSI. In some cases, they might have had a pre-discussion with a couple or with a woman and say, listen, the sperm quality is so good, we don't need to do ICSI. We're just going to sprinkle the sperm on the eggs and let the sperm kind of compete for the egg entry on their own. And it is quite remarkable. It's kind of cool to, to think about how this was established, you know, in the 70s. And then over a week in the incubators, the embryology team is very carefully watching to see if the eggs are fertilizing and if the fertilized eggs are turning into these embryos. We typically talk about blastocyst embryos now, the ones that make it to five, six days, seven days of development. And there are these beautiful bubbled cells of about 60 to 100 cells per blastocyst with a fluid-filled center. And they can freeze them. They can have the doctor put one back into the uterus of the patient if they want to just do a fresh transfer. They can do PGT. Yes, that's my acronym, next question. Right? Yes. Yes. Pre-implantation genetic testing. And typically it's done for aneuploidy or, or spontaneous 
chromosomal genetic mismatching errors that are not related to your health, your partner's health, your family history, but related to more to the age and quality of the eggs and sperm that are being used. So aneuploidy rates definitely go up with aging, particularly on the, on the egg side. And common aneuploidies that can happen out of the blue are things like trisomy 21 or Down syndrome. And it's a very common reason to explain why miscarriage rates tend to go up as women age and try to keep on conceiving from 30 to 40 to 45. And why this tool can be very useful to help select out the embryo that has the best chance of implanting leading to a healthy pregnancy. The embryos can be frozen. And this is remarkable to me also. It's not like you put them in an ice cube tray and they get freezer burn like a steak. They're put in deep freeze and nitrogen. And I've seen patients with embryos frozen for over 10, 11, 12 years, come back, have those embryos thought survive, and then have them implanted into the uterus and have a baby. It's just amazing. It, it makes me think of what's happening at the polar caps right now with some melting and like the worms are coming back to life. And it's like, oh my goodness. Yeah. So yeah. Mother, know, Mother right? Nature did this too with some deep freezing as well. So let's talk about egg freezing and oncofertility. What are the other specialties that you have? So it's one of the topics that are, is truly near and dear to my heart. It's bad enough when you have someone who's relatively healthy being told they have infertility. But then it's, I think it's even worse and more traumatic when let's say you have a 28-year-old woman used to being healthy, assumes that she's going to have a long fertile life, not even thinking about kids actually, and then feels a lump and in many cases gets ignored or dismissed. I've seen this happen over and over again where women will come in and say, yeah, I told my doctor six months ago, I felt something and they said, you're fine, you're too young to have cancer and then come back with stage one, two or three breast cancer. And now they're struggling for their life and they're being told at the same time, you know, we're going to help you with this. But the chemotherapy that you're going to be engaging in is going to potentially render you and put you into early menopause. So premature menopause is menopause before the age of 40. And so now the patient's like, what am I supposed to do? I'm not even thinking about having kids for another five, 10 years. But my oncologist is doing the right thing and they're sending me to you because they're saying you have time to do fertility preservation, but you better do it in the next four weeks because we need to like take care of your tumor. So with fertility preservation, that same injection process, same myriad of hormones, again, with approval from the oncologist does not increase the risk of like morbidity or mortality from breast cancer. And this has been well studied, thankfully. And then the patient gets her eggs removed. And in most cases, because usually women will present and they're single or unpartnered, will freeze the eggs in and of them by themselves. So that if they get to a point in time when they come back and they'll say, listen, you know, I need to use my previously frozen eggs. Thank goodness I've been in remission for my breast cancer for five years. We can take those eggs out of the freezer. The embryology team takes over. And if the eggs survive, they don't always, but the technology has gotten much better. So usually for younger age women, they'll survive 80, 90% of the time intact. Those frozen thawed eggs can then be put to the IVF treatment process to try to create embryos at a later point in time. So that's fertility preservation, right? Particularly for single unpartnered individuals. Do these women ever decide to go a step further and instead of just doing egg freezing, actually look at a sperm donor and actually develop an embryo? Yeah, so that's, I'm so glad you asked about that. So back when, I can't remember when Lissa Klein, who's one of our SVPs here, Progeny, she and I worked together at Columbia. I think back when she and I helped co-found the Oncofertility Program at Columbia in the early 2000s, because egg freezing was not all that, it wasn't so efficient, eggs are very finicky because they're large cells with lots of water. So they create a lot of ice crystals when being frozen. So it literally took 50 years of research in mice and rabbits and humans to figure out how best to freeze them. And now we use something called vitrification lab to flash freeze them. But back then I would counsel these young patients and say, listen, we need to talk about fertility preservation. I can't promise these eggs are going to work. Do you want to think about using a sperm donor or your current partner's sperm to create embryos? The tricky thing there is Embryos do tend to survive the freezer more efficiently, but the problem is, is if your relationship status changes in certain states and situations, one, your former partner, let's say you try to create embryos today with your current boyfriend, if the two of you are no longer together in five years, that partner may say, listen, I, I, I'm not going to give you permission to use those embryos. And it adds another layer of stress because you have this person who's like, you're telling me about early menopause, you're telling me about breast cancer, now I have to pick a sperm donor, what am I supposed to do? So thanks to the developments and improvements in technology in terms of how well eggs can be frozen nowadays, more and more, particularly women who are not sure about the relationship status in the present day, will choose to do egg freezing. I do have a few patients who will say, listen, I have a partner. We're long-term. We're committed. I know that a relationship may potentially change. And there have been some, unfortunately, pretty well-publicized lawsuits around this, about, like divorcing partners where one partner will no longer be able to access the embryos they created. But I do have some partnered patients who say, I want to do embryo freezing. 
Janet, as we think about the option of freezing your eggs, certainly, again, it's, you have to know it's an option. You have to be committed to it. There's got to be some cost up front. But again, it's, you're freezing them for a later date. So is it a payment plan that you just keep paying? Do, at some point, do you decide, I'm not going to keep paying because you know what? I had my kids. What is the cost or ongoing cost of that look like? So egg freezing, it depends. Again, some employers, some plans like Progeny will offer total coverage for a cycle of egg freezing or two cycles of egg freezing or whatever the employer decides, plus storage. The egg freezing part, when you account for the medications and the treatment cycle, will vary. But in general, if the woman goes to a reputable place, because it's really important to go to a place where the lab has a lot of experience doing this, again, because the eggs are very fickle right, is to try to account for the fact that the cost will probably be around $10,000, $15,000, $15,000 all in, medications, medical fees, lab fees, and everything else. Storage fees, again, I can only speak to the New York City area, but it's usually about after the first year, because in many places they'll wrap in one year of storage. And usually after that, it's going to be about $1,000 per year. And some insurance plans will actually have a built-in cryo storage coverage benefit. Some will not. And so some patients have said to me and done this where they're like, listen, I researched this and I found a good cryo storage area. It's kind of like U-Haul storage or Manhattan storage, but for gametes, for eggs, right? Where all they do is they specialize in very safely storing your eggs at like a third of the cost. Now, let's say fast forward, you're one of those fortunate ones and a lot of people will end up doing this. They'll say, oh, I anticipated problems, but I had my two children and I don't need to use my eggs. What do I do? It's up to you. You're in control of them. You could tell your lab team to thaw and discard the eggs. Some people will elect to donate them for research. We badly need these eggs for research to improve the quality of the care that we're offering down the road. And there are some situations where people can, I think, elect to donate them to others in need. So one beautiful treatment that I've seen is less with eggs, but with already created embryos, embryo donation series, where a patient will say to me, listen, I can't afford egg donation. We didn't get to touch on that, but I really badly want to have a baby. I can afford something. And there are some places where they'll say, listen, we have these pre-created embryos from a family that said, pay it forward, please donate them. We just don't want to get involved. Give them anonymously to someone else. And so then that intended parent can use that donated embryo to conceive a child at about a third of a cost of like a donor egg cycle. Interesting. Let's get a little bit basic and talk about birth rates and fertility itself. It feels like we're talking about fertility a lot more. There's more programs, family formation, all these kinds of things. Are those two things the same? When we look at the, it was the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention said that birth rates have declined in most states across the U.S. in recent years. We know this is worldwide as well. And it's partly because women are having babies at an older age. Is it a birth rate problem? Is it a fertility problem? Is it a little bit of both? What is the difference between those two terms? You know, I, I'm not the best statistician or epidemiologist. I do know what you were alluding to, that the CDC keeps, seems to be observing that every year, the age at first birth for a woman is increasing. I am not sure why I would hypothesize that it could be because more and more women are focusing on their careers. There are also different social issues that may impact, you know, a lot of women will say, I'd like to be with a partner before I actually have a child. And some people may be delaying that relationship development for a whole variety of different reasons. The other issue, though, is medical and biologic. So because women are, are born with a finite number of eggs and because the quality declines with age, when a woman starts to try to procreate at a later age, she's not doomed to infertility failure. I, I, I warn patients this all the time. There are plenty of women in the late 30s and 40s conceive without any assistance, totally fine, right? But the rate, when you look at the rate of infertility, the inability to conceive through heterosexual sex for 12 months or longer, definitely increases in a linear, and then the slope gets steeper as women enter their mid to late 30s. And then because of the quality issue of the eggs, the miscarriage rates also increase. So it may delay the time from when a woman first says, listen, I'm now ready to start building my family before she actually has a healthy pregnancy deliver. Yeah, that makes sense. You alluded earlier to the, the time that you were able to spend with patients, that you could look at more general health, more than just kind of addressing fertility in the moment and the next step. And general health is such an important part of fertility. So important. As an internist, I know that as well. And, and these things that we address, can we talk about some of those medical problems that might complicate a woman's desire to actually have a pregnancy? 
you know, I think the issue is, is it's not just having a medical condition. I think the misconception is someone will come to the door saying, oh, I have Crohn's disease or I have multiple sclerosis. There's no way I'm going to be able to have a healthy pregnancy. I'm also not true. So long as you're being well-maintained and managed with your neurologist or whatever specialty doctor you need, so long as you make sure before you try to conceive that you're on the proper medications that are not teratogenic, birth defect causing, if safe for you, you could very well have a healthy pregnancy in the vast majority of cases. But I really like about the idea that I was able to construct with my patients. And again, I, I'm fully aware that many physicians don't have the time because of the administrative needs, right, to spend time with their patients. But what I really love about working with the patients who did egg freezing in particular was we had time to talk not just about their future fertility, but about preventative things they could pay attention to in the here and now so that if and when they were ready to try to conceive in three to four or five years, they were better prepped and primed. So not just like the medical issues. So for instance, like women with ADHD, I see so many patients who come in the door on Vyvanse and other medications for that. I'll say to them, totally fine, but just make sure you talk to your reproductive psychiatrist because some of these may not be safe to take during pregnancy. Same with depression or anxiety management. Just make sure that you're very well co-managed with a specialist who knows how to take care of women during pregnancy. But I also love just giving general women's health advice or lifestyle advice. So a lot of women would say, I had one patient recently say to me, oh, I thought because I had an IUD in place that I was protected. And I'm like, you're protected against pregnancy, <laughs> right? but not against STIs like gonorrhea and chlamydia. And the rates of those are actually going up. And did you know that chlamydia can be silent? It's not like your partner is intentionally trying to give you chlamydia. They just don't know they have it. And then years down the road, you may show up with tubal infertility or blocked fallopian tubes. And she was like, I had no idea. And I was like, that's why you should be using barrier contraception as well. The role of folic acid treatment supplementation has been shown in so many studies to like, if you just pop that folic acid pill starting a month or two or three before conception, you can greatly reduce the risk of having a baby form with a brain or spinal cord defect. And social habits like smoking, alcohol, recreational drug use, as I was preparing for this, I still recall one gentleman who told me years ago saying, listen, there's no study out there that says marijuana is unhealthy. It's totally fine. doesn't cause cancer. And I almost fell off my chair. Like, yeah. Right. <laughs> so, so I was like, well, you know, there are studies showing that, for instance, marijuana, alcohol use, especially in higher quantities, can affect sperm quality, not just female reproductive health. And I feel like if people understand that early on, one, they might actually limit their needs to, to access care for infertility treatments. They might hopefully conceive on their own. And, and I feel like they're, they feel more in control of their life. And hopefully just feel better. They're healthier. It, it's, it's not so much what you have from a medical standpoint, but what you're controlling. If your diabetes is under control, if you know, all these other things have been addressed, then you still are that healthy person who can go through those treatments and have a baby. We talked about some of the barriers. One of them is costs. And I just want to get this out there for those listening. So they've got an idea. We did the research as it were. So surrogacy is one of the options, of course, that doesn't necessarily involve a whole bunch of things. And yet it's still cost prohibitive for a lot of people. I found numbers, tell me if I've got it right, hundred dollars to $200,000 for surrogacy. Would, would you say so? So yeah, I think that's probably ballpark correct. And I think the reason for that is so gestational carrier is just to give listeners a, a, a brief background. It's basically a woman who's had a proven track record of having had healthy full-term deliveries that are uncomplicated from the past, who then willingly teams up with the intended parent or parents. And that intended parent may find that they need gestational carrier because their uterus is just not cooperating with them anymore, either because of past surgery or conditions like adenomyosis or endometriosis, making it hard for them to carry. Adenomyosis being the common term of fibroids. Well, actually, adenomyosis, adenomyomas. Yeah, adenomyosis is actually cousin to endometriosis. It causes this weird, spongy, inflammatory condition of the muscle of the uterus. And one celebrity who's talked about this a lot, very honestly, is Gabrielle Union. She said she had to see three or four different specialists before she ended up seeing one of my friends in LA, who finally explained to her, "This is gonna, you're never gonna be able to really carry." And so she finally, fortunately, had a baby with a gestational carrier. Same-sex male couples and single males obviously will need to use a gestational carrier. And so now you're paying not just for the person's effort to help you carry, right? Pregnancy is basically almost 10 months. The myth is, is it's not nine months, it's 10 months, right? You're also have, helping to pay for her legal expenses, the contracting, the medical support she's going to need during the pregnancy and for some time afterwards. 
And that's the reason why the costs really ratchet up. So it can be prohibitively expensive. What about in vitro? So in vitro fertilization, it can vary depending on different testing models that are added in. But in general, you are looking at costs of all in, including the medications, $15,000, $20,000 or more. The medications can be incredibly expensive, these gonadotropins, because they're specialty drugs. So the medicines alone can cost somebody five dollars to $6,000, if not more, for one attempt at IVF. And it's prohibitive for so many people. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in a moment as well. And then the other option that doesn't involve any of this, which is adoption. So a lot of families formed through adoption, even foster care. Even adoption has a price range that I found, again, ballparks 20000 to 70000 depending on if it's domestic or international, public, through a system, those kinds of things. So again, for a lot of people, it's just a natural consequence of family formation that happens. And for others, it's such an investment. And I think there's a big reflection that we need to think about as a society and, and how we value everybody who has a desire to participate in this how they're able to do that, which also comes to the whole equity question, which I want to talk about a little bit more. You know, the benefit that you have is something that people typically purchase, right, with progeny, or they have a benefit through their health insurance, or sometimes they don't and they're paying out of pocket. So these are folks that typically have jobs, that have health insurance as a benefit, and you just might not find yourself with those kinds of privileges. But even within those categories, there's still some differences when it comes to, we know that Black maternal health care can look very different. What about Black family formation around fertility, the access, the ability to do that? What about race and ethnicity? Can you talk about that for a little bit? Yes, I'm glad that, so glad you brought it up. So again, at least in terms of access to care, thankfully, I think more and more states are catching on. I think now it's up to about 21 states that have some kind of, not necessarily complete, but at least some sort of mandated fertility coverage. But despite that, and I was just looking at a study the other day, outcomes are poor for people who are not white and access to care or people who seek treatment will often occur at a later, meaning, for instance, looking at black individuals who suffer infertility, twice as likely to be diagnosed with infertility than women who are white, and yet two or three times less likely to seek care. And or when they do seek care, it's going to be at a later age. And as I mentioned before, because age is such a big factor in terms of influencing success rates with these treatments, that's a big issue. It's a very complex reason for why. One could be just access to care. There's a limited number of reproductive endocrinologists and providers in the country, and about 3% of them identify as Black. Three, is that what I heard? 3%, whereas I think, you know, in the general U.S. population, about 15% identify as Black, right? And there have been studies showing that outcomes are improved when a patient actually teams up with a provider. A kind of a somewhat similar background, at least from a race or ethnicity standpoint, just because of the cultural understanding. Then I think there's also this mythology, these really, these lies, these stereotypes that I think impose some social pressure and inhibit individuals from seeking care that, you know, oh, Black women can't be infertile, right? We're shown... We know that you're, you're really strong and should be able to have children without any help whatsoever. So why do you need to see a doctor? And so I think there's that shame factor. Yes. This undue societal pressure that limits even like having them go and make that first appointment. The other issue is some basically some unconscious, some bias there potentially on the providers. And so the need to educate providers to provide truly equitable care from the outset and making assumptions. And so if, for instance, a Black individual has infertility, and needs a referral from their primary care provider, who may not be intentionally, you know, say that they're being racist, may have these assumptions say, oh, you don't need to seek care right now, just wait for another year or two, right? And so then they're not even getting their foot in the door to get the right specialty care. It's just a, a complex web of, of reasons contributing to this, but there is hope. I was really excited to see when we were looking at our own internal numbers, at least the from the breakdown from the members of our members in project in terms of race, I think the proportion of women who identified as Black accessing care was closer to more like, I forgot the numbers, but closer to the national population balance. So that to me was very heartening. Yeah, absolutely. And so we can also talk about equity without talking about benefits. So I want to transition there a little bit, because hopefully some of our listeners are going to be thinking about that either for themselves, their loved ones, or because they work in a place where they can ask about them, or they can actually help influence what they are. 
And I know that there are some recommendations that you would have for benefit formation, as it were. What do those look like? What do you think people should think about when they think about benefits? So I think from an employer perspective, there are different angles to take it from. From an employer perspective, if it's really important for you to retain your good employees and and show really meaningful support, it's imperative to offer truly comprehensive and and truly equitable fertility and family building benefits. There have been surveys that have been done, close to 50% of millennials say that they value better benefits over higher pay. And Progeny just did their own survey of the LGBTQ community, like a thousand participants. And it was shocking to me that 68% of them said, listen, I can't access my own company's benefits because I don't meet their diagnosis of infertility. So it's kind of useless to me. So making sure that your benefits that don't have these kind of restrictive, not intentionally, but somewhat discriminatory requirements in order for your employees to access the care they need and want. And then understanding that it just doesn't stop with providing, you know, access to a good fertility provider and the necessary IUI or IVF treatments, but also including some coverage for things like adoption and gestational carrier support, making sure that your leave policies are really equitable, meaning providing leave for someone who's mourning their own pregnancy loss, as well as for the person who's mourning the, the failed transfer of their gestational carrier or time off for adoption care. I think that's really important to include. I've gotten feedback from talking to members from the trans community and having a flexible work from home because there's a safety issue, especially for a transgender individual who is gestating, where they say, listen, I don't want to go into the workplace and talk about why, as a transgender male, am I gravid? I feel safer staying at home and working from home and contributing to my employer that way. Those really seem to translate, although they sound really expensive. The analysis and the crunching seems to suggest that by helping with retention and providing access to safe, really professional expert care so patients get pregnant faster, that employers can save 20-30% by just putting this into play. Well, and when you think about the cost of turnover, the cost of you know recruitment, all those kinds of things versus having satisfied people who love working in this space because of those benefits, I can see how it, it all pans out. The other thing that I thought was just so applicable is thinking about the dollar caps. As you talked about earlier in our conversation, historically, you know, there's been a lot of pressure that people feel in terms of, I've only got this much in my benefit, I've saved this much. And yet for any other medical problem, we don't say, well, you you know, you've spent this much on your diabetes and you have a dollar cap on your diabetes, right? It sounds ridiculous, right? It sounds ridiculous to even think about that. And yet this has been an exception. I think partly because we haven't thought it through, but you have some opinions on that dollar cap. I do. And I actually think that it's better than nothing, but it can actually backfire time and time again because it doesn't, one, if you have a dollar cap for a national employer, for instance, that dollar doesn't go much farther to cover care for, say, someone who lives in an area where the cost of care is lower, Midwest, versus someone who lives in an urban setting like New York City or LA or DC. And then it also doesn't account for the different needs for the different members, right? And, you know, one patient may need just an IUI to get pregnant. Another patient may need, because she's 43, three rounds of IVF before she has a genetically healthy normal embryo available for use, and then she can have a baby. So when a patient is doing her mental accounting or their mental accounting, then they kind of pull me and my staff members in to help them compute out what's the least costly measure as opposed to thinking about what's the safest, most efficient way of achieving that singleton pregnancy. And so where I've seen it backfire, sometimes patients will say, I I hear what you're saying. I hear you're saying that a singleton pregnancy is is the safest route, but it's my last attempt at IVF and I won't be able to cover another IVF cycle. Let's try number two. Can you put in an extra embryo? And I'll say, even though our professional guidelines say it is okay, I don't advise it because the twin rates suddenly jump from 1% to 25, 30%. And the triplet rates also increase somewhat because sometimes that embryo can split into two. And then down the road, the cost of healthcare increases because if, heaven forbid, the woman delivers at 24 weeks, and if she's fortunate enough to have her babies survive, then they're going to be in the NICU for about six months, you know, eight months, whatever else with all their conditions. Yeah. And the cost then goes up. So it's it's so short-sighted, right, to not be thinking about this up front and anticipating what's down the road. So this has been fantastic. I have enjoyed our conversation so much. I always like to end on the call to action. And I think that there's maybe two layers here that I want to think about. 
One is for just the average listener who might be thinking about a family in the future or a family now. Any advice that you would give them when they want to think about protecting or preserving their fertility? So I think it's never too early to start thinking about this, especially for women. And so you could start off by having a conversation with your gynecologist, if they can spare you the time between the pap smear and breast exam. Or if you have some trusted friends or relatives, there are a number of women who are willing to talk about this. There's some great organizations with resources like Resolve and Family Equality. And at the same time, I also think it's important to, to not panic because infertility, although it affects one in five reproductive age in the, in the country nowadays, not everybody suffers it, but you want to be well-educated and well-informed and see if your employer provides things like fertility preservation benefits so you have future options. I also think it's important to make sure that you focus on your overall health because that can actually impact your future fertility and pregnancy outcomes. And you mentioned diabetes. I always am focused on obesity because the rates of that have increased so much in the past couple of decades. And obesity leads to a myriad of medical problems, including infertility and pregnancy complications. So doing simple home measures to try to focus on maintaining a healthy lifestyle, body mass index can go a long way. I also think it's important to, if you don't have the benefits with your employer, don't be afraid to ask. I think in about two-thirds of employer cases, they just didn't know their employees wanted this. And so a savvy employer that just put a kit together and said, listen, it's really important to me and other colleagues to have these family building benefits in place. Can we do something about it? I also think it's really important to have comprehensive women's health care support to respect and honor those people who don't necessarily want to have children, but want really good health care, preventative care, as well as acute care. And so I think paying attention to the opposite ends of the spectrum for those who are preconception or not even thinking about trying to conceive to those women who are in their perimenopausal years, because I mean, I'm in that age category now, we make up 40% of the workforce, right? And we're going to do another podcast about this, but I think it's kind of laughable that suddenly in 2023, menopause is now the hot new topic. I know it, it is. It is fascinating. I've never been the hot topic. So I know. <laughs> And now we are. <laughs> I love so I think it. it's just, I think it's important to understand that it's not an insurmountable problem, that as HR leaders out there and employers, there are ways to actually implement change that are not too costly, that show true meaningful support for all of your employees. And I'll just point out, because again, during the research for this, I found on your website, on Project's website, the Equitable Fertility and Family Building Checklist, which I thought was just terrific. So if people I'm so glad are, you brought that up. Yeah. Yeah. So if people are looking for what looks like good benefits, this is just a nice place to start to think about the benefits that you might want access to or might want to provide as well. Janet, anything that you wish I would have asked you that I haven't asked you? What I appreciate about all of your podcasts that I've listened to is that medicine is about humanity and common humanity about compassionate and thoughtful listening, as well as sort of saying, oh, here's a treatment that we want to just apply to you. And also about respect. And I think focusing on things like improving women's health care, fertility, family building, kind of sort of gets at those basic core beliefs. And that's super important. I mean, one thing I wanted to add and to the oncofertility piece that is so important is the sense of giving back control over one's life in a very fraught period of time. And I've heard that over and over again from the patients with cancer who came through the door, ended up freezing their eggs. Even if they never even used it, they're like, it was a sea of a moment of calm and all this freneticism where I'm scrambling to see my oncologist. So, you know, they were very appreciative that they were able to do that. Yeah, just having a choice when you're in the middle of something that's so choiceless, it is empowering and gives you back that sense of autonomy, just even a little bit that lets you know, you know what, I, I'm going to hold on to this because maybe things are going to be all right. One more question that comes up for me that I think that you touched on so briefly, but must be a part of so many conversations, is the subject of shame. And I think that we see that actually in a lot of medical conditions. And I think that, again, there's such vulnerability, number one, around the desire to have a family as it is, to then have this difficulty in, in forming a family and to not be able to conceive naturally. What role does shame play in, in that physician-patient conversation in order to, I guess, deal with that, call it out, and maybe have some healing around that? It's going to vary from physician to physician, but when I look at the incredible colleagues around me, I think we're kind of of the same mindset where the patient is coming to you. My job is to, with my team, nurses, medical assistants, 
at Progeny, these fantastic patient care advocates that I forgot to mention, they're like patient concierges, to create a safe, welcoming, understanding space. And I try to normalize this. I try to explain to patients, there's nothing shameful about this. You didn't do anything wrong. Just because it seems like your friends left and right are popping out babies and doing gender reveals doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, they're not sharing the whole picture. I can just tell you there's some of them who actually came to us for care. So there's nothing to be ashamed about this. And at the same time, there's no shame in saying, you know what, I don't think I want to have children. I'm comfortable with my identity as being a full-fledged contributing adult in this community, and, and I don't want kids. So both choices, whether you want to follow the pathway to parenthood or decide not to, are both equally respectful choices. So I think basically trying to normalize everything, trying to put everything out in the open, and if that's not enough, also making sure that individuals have access to the right mental health support. Sometimes support groups work well for some individuals, sometimes just seeing a specialized reproductive psychiatrist or a social worker who helps coach patients through fertility journeys is very helpful. I think it's, it's all very important. And again, unfortunately, the shame doesn't, I feel like women are taught to feel a lot of shame throughout their life, right? So again, we didn't get to talk about menopause. But the fact that 70 to 80% of women will suffer menopausal type symptoms, and yet the majority of them, 70, 80% of them will never even seek medical care because they're like, I tried to bring it up once with my doctor. They kind of blew me off. I was told to suck it up. I, I don't want to bring it up at work because I'm afraid they're going to think of me as an old lady. So how am I going to advance career wise? So I think we need to put all this out in the open. And none of this is shameful. It's actually things to be celebrated, these changes in life. I love that. And, and I'm going to go back to the beginning, which is actually onset of periods, right? We're embarrassed. We're mortified sometimes. Oh, you know what? It, you, you bled through, for instance, or all these things where, or you have, to, you have to hide your pads or tampons. And it's just like, these are normal bodily functions that actually contribute to a healthy person. And yet, to your point, everything changes through onset of puberty for girls in a big way for boys as well. But we carry that whole cycle of shame around our reproductive abilities or functions for a very long time. And I can only imagine, again, how you and your role as a physician have truly been part of that whole healing process, not just a family formation process, but a healing process, just how you approach this and, and the respect that you give, no matter where people are in their journey and the decisions that they make. I feel like I've just grown in admiration for you, quite honestly, Janet. You're just an amazing human being, as well as an amazing physician and leader. So thank you for the work that you do. And thank you for the conversation. I think that this will also reverberate. It was, it was such a treat to get to talk with you. And I really appreciate your podcast and what you're doing in terms of spreading the word. So thank you to you and your team. Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks to my guests for joining me today. And thank you for listening to the Health Fuse podcast with Deb Friesen, MD. I hope you'll share this episode with colleagues, friends, and family members who are interested in diving deeper into meaningful and relevant health and wellness topics. I look forward to the next conversation and will share another episode of Health Views with you soon. Take good care. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. The discussion reflects the opinions of the speakers and is not intended to represent Kaiser Permanente policy. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. The content is not intended to be a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information is at the listener's own risk. Listeners should not disregard or delay obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have, and should seek the assistance of their medical professionals. Music